Well, this morning uh, we are going to turn to the book of Acts. So if you would, I'd invite you to turn there with me. And we are going to be starting in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, It was a little while back that I opened the book of Mark and said, you know, I just need to choose a book and to run with it rather than finding all my favorite passages and just preaching those and being selective. Uh, But then I looked at some of the churches that I would be filling the pulpit for, and they had just gone through the gospel of John as well as the gospel of Mark. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to need to uh, do something different for them. And so uh, I thought, I'm going to look at Acts, which follows uh, the stories of the gospel. Uh, And so that's what I've done. Uh, And uh, we're going to just start in Acts 1, verse 1, running through verse 11 this morning. Uh, And just by way of preface, before we read this text, I'll just say a few background things. First of all, Luke is the author Uh, to Acts, the introduction makes clear, and it's parallel to the introduction in the Gospel of Luke, that whoever wrote the Gospel of Luke was the same person who authored Acts. And in fact, that the style, the syntax, the grammar, the word choice, the themes are all the same between the two books. And the Gospel of Luke, we know that it was in fact written by Luke from the early titles that were assigned to the gospel in the earliest manuscripts that we have. It says that the gospel is the gospel according to Luke. And all of the church fathers, they only ascribe Luke's gospel to Luke. And Luke in Colossians, he's called the beloved physician. So he was a learned man, an erudite man who would have been able to write these works. And he was also a traveling companion to Paul. And so he would have been well-equipped to write the account of Acts, which, as you know, the second half of it recounts Paul's missionary journeys. It must have been someone who was with Paul. And in certain places in Acts, there's these we statements. Whoever wrote Acts had spent some time with Paul, and Luke qualifies for that. So Luke uh, is the author, and in terms of dating, uh, scholars believe that this is most likely sometime around the year eighty. 62 that this was written. And that's because Paul's house arrest in Rome, which comes at the very end of Acts, that was from AD 60 to AD 62. And it's safe to assume that if Luke had written this after he'd gone on with Paul's further missionary journeys, and we know that Luke did from the pastoral epistles, that if Luke had written after those journeys, he probably would have included them. But The story ends where it does, likely because that's when Luke wrote it, right after Paul's house arrest. So this was written in about AD 62. And the purpose is to provide us with a selective history of the early church to demonstrate indeed that Christ reigns and rules from his heavenly throne. That's what the book of Acts is about. And of course, we get all sorts of encouragement and instruction from Acts about the Christian life. And so I'm excited for this book, and I hope you are too. And uh, if you would, out of reverence for God's word, I'd invite you to stand now. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning in these opening words of the book of Acts, we get not only a blueprint for the entire book of Acts, but we also get a blueprint for understanding our own witness as believers here and now in the 21st century. And it's this word witness that's going to be the central word this morning as we look at this passage. And that's because it appears in what many consider to be something of a summary or an outline of the entire book. And that's verse 8 where Jesus gives to the apostles their central task. In verse 6, the apostles ask, in my judgment, what is a very reasonable question, right? Imagine being in their shoes. Jesus had just conquered death. He'd risen from the grave, and now the promised Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel, he's appearing to them, and as we read, speaking about the kingdom of God. And so they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, right? And we'd all love to know that question. The Old Testament looks forward to that that time of rich glory and abundance and blessing and peace when God brings his kingdom to Israel, when he restores it to the son of David. But how does Jesus answer them? He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't tell them it's a bad question, but he does tell them that it's not for them to know the timing. That's not their concern. And then in verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And in these words, we have a summary really not only of Acts, but of what the church has been up to for the last 2,000 years. And that's talking about Jesus. That's what we do alongside worship. Witness is our main occupation. Really, the, the whole of the Christian life could be summarized in those two things. Worshiping God, knowing Him and praising Him, delighting in who He is, and then serving Him in witness. And of course, for all sorts of reasons, I'm guessing most of us would readily admit it's not always an easy calling, witnessing to Christ. It's not always something we get excited about. 
We fear what others will think of us. We lack confidence. We're afraid we won't have all the right words and we won't have all the right answers to people's questions. And the list goes on, but suffice it to say, you and I stand in need of continual encouragement when it comes to this calling to be witnesses to our Lord. And that's what I pray and trust that we'll receive this morning as we uh, look here at Acts chapter 1. And there are two truths that I want us to see here as we think about our witness. And the first truth is this. The living Christ gives power to our witness. The living Christ gives power to our witness. Our text begins in verses 1 and 2 with Luke summarizing the first volume that he had written to Theophilus. And just briefly, we're not told much about Theophilus, but it's probably safe to assume that he was a Christian. And it very well may be the case that he was Luke's patron with these writing projects, that he helped fund them. In Luke's gospel, he's said, uh, Luke calls him by, oh, most excellent Theophilus. So he may have been nobility, or he was at least a person of uh, distinguished rank. And we see that Luke's gospel and Acts, they're both dedicated to him, but surely these writings are meant for a very broad audience. So at least formally, Luke is writing to Theophilus, and he opens with this summary of his gospel account. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And in the verses that follow, we'll get to see what those pre-ascension commands are. But here I want to draw our attention to a peculiar word that appears in the summary we just read, and that is the word began. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Here at the beginning of this second volume, Luke is making the point that the earthly ministry of Jesus was really only the beginning of his work. Christ's ascension, we'll see, is not his retirement. He's not on vacation. He's not leaning back on a recliner. Rather, the ascension marks a transition from the work that Christ did on earth, yet now continues from his heavenly throne. Throughout Acts, Luke is very clear in making the point that Christ is building his church. Just as he told Peter, I will build my church. So in Acts 2.47, we read, And the Lord, that's Jesus' title, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And in Acts 11, when the Jews scatter because of persecution, some end up preaching the good news in Antioch. And Luke writes, And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believe turn to the Lord. In Acts, people are healed by the power of Christ's name. And as the witness of the church spreads, it's the word of the Lord that is said to increase and even prevail. And in Acts 19, we read this summary statement. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the apostles are the mouthpiece, but it is the word of the Lord that is being spoken. And the list could go on and on about seeing Christ at work in Acts, but especially relevant to our passage this morning is the relationship we see in Acts between Christ 
and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, Peter says of Jesus, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And there's Peter speaking about the giving of the Spirit to the church on the day of Pentecost. And according to Jesus, uh, to Peter, Jesus is the one who's poured out his Spirit. And who is, in fact, in the mystery of the Trinity, uh, the Spirit is, in fact, called the Lord's Spirit. In Acts 5, Peter calls the Spirit the Spirit of the Lord. And in Acts 16, Luke calls the Spirit the Spirit of Jesus. And it's those titles, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Jesus, those titles give us an understanding of why Jesus, here at the beginning of Acts, told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem. In verse 3, Luke speaks about the post-resurrection of appearances of Jesus. And we'll come back to those in just a moment. And then in verse 4 of our text, we read, And while staying them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, a lot could be said about these two baptisms, but the summary version of this, uh, summary version is this. John's baptism was a symbolic cleansing. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in preparation for the coming of Jesus, God's promised Messiah. The baptism with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, on the other hand, was about receiving power from the risen Christ for the purpose of witness. And again, more could be said about these baptisms, but what's clear about John's baptism is that it did not confer the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the baptism on the day of Pentecost would. That would be a baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's extremely important for our text because up until this point, the apostles had always had Jesus there with them face to face. But now... Now that Jesus had accomplished his work, most centrally the work of atoning for sins and of rising again, of conquering death, of rising to new life, now he's poised to take his heavenly throne alongside his fathers. And so soon the disciples are to be without Christ. And here he is giving them a mission that is no doubt going to require supernatural power. And so as leaving, this is not a happy thought. We recall, however, that Jesus had made an incredible, and I mean nearly unbelievable, an incredible promise to his disciples in John 14, where he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And we ask ourselves, how in the world is that possible that we would do the same works and even greater works than Christ, especially if Christ is about to leave his disciples? And we get the answer in the very next verse, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Christ says that he is the one who will do his work in and through us. And again, how will he do it? The answer, two verses later, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper 
to be with you forever. Skipping a verse, Jesus continues, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let a little, uh, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. Speaking of his ascension. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. And this whole dialogue is about the very thing we see in Acts 1 and then in Acts 2. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 4 to wait for the promise of the Father. And that promise that of the Father, that's probably referring to the same thing that Peter refers to in Joel 2, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all of God's people. And the apostles are to wait for this promise because apart from the Spirit, they are powerless. And so in verse 8, after somewhat sidestepping the disciples' questions about the timing of the kingdom, Jesus gives the apostles their work, which has come to be called the Great Commission. We're familiar with Matthew's version, uh, but it's also here. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Global witness, in fact, starting in Jerusalem. That's the apostles' task. And it would be impossible were it not for this gift of the Holy Spirit. But what do we see in the book of Acts? In Acts 1 through 7, the apostles witness in Jerusalem and the church is established. And then in uh, chapters 8 through 12, the apostles witness in Judea and Samaria and the church grows. And then in Acts 13 through 28 with Paul's missionary journeys and then his voyage to Rome, the apostolic witness begins to extend to the ends of the earth. And all of this in the face of persecution. What we learn in our passage here is that the witness is only successful because Christ is present and exercising his power through his spirit. And so John Stott, the 20th century pastor and theologian, he says that a more accurate title for this book, rather than just the Acts of the Apostles, he says that a more accurate title might be the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through his apostles. Jesus is alive and at work. And that's the encouragement for us today. Jesus didn't retire when he ascended and he did not retire at the end of Acts, but he is still at work today in and through our very witness. And that's what makes our evangelism not a hopeless endeavor. Right? Because even as we stumble over our words, even as we, we fumble and we don't get it all right, we're not eloquent, we don't always recall the strongest arguments, whatever the case may be, even still we are not alone, but Christ himself is with us. So in Acts 16, we see an example of this. We read of Paul and Silas and Timothy. They're speaking to a group of women outside the city of Philippi. And Luke writes, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then we read that she and her household were baptized. And that passage gives us a wonderful prayer to pray. Oh Lord, would you open the heart of my neighbor? of my coworker, of my family member, right? Whether we're, we're Zooming with 
someone states away or whether we're talking with the person across the street, we pray for and then we anticipate Christ's work. And of course, we know that not all will come to faith, but we trust that some will as Christ opens people's hearts to receive the word. It's worth noting here, I think, especially in these verses, we see that uh, new life is about a lot more, and it takes a lot more than just the impartation of information or evidence. And I'm a strong believer in apologetics. There are a lot of good reasons we have for believing what we believe, and we can and should defend our faith with reason and logic. But here we see that the apostles had seen the risen Christ, and he had shown them many convincing proofs, the text says, for 40 days. And so if this is your first time reading Acts, you might anticipate here Christ saying, okay, <laughs> you've got what you need, right? Go, let's, let's start the work. No time to lose. But in fact, it's just the opposite. In verse 4, we read that Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. And that's because the real power in our witness comes not merely from rational arguments, but from Christ's presence with us, him speaking through us and softening people's hearts to receive his words. And that means that we ought to pray and to pray hard, to pray with persistence, to pray as if salvation depended on God. And we know that it does. So Jesus is the main player in the book of Acts, and he's the main player still in our witness today. That's the first point. The living Christ gives power to our witness. The second truth from our passage this morning is this. Our witness concerns the living Christ. Our witness concerns the living Christ. Now again, we're looking at the opening verses of the book of Acts, what we might call the prologue. And they're setting up for us uh, the stage to understand the rest of the book, and specifically the apostolic witness to Christ. And one of the questions that people have asked reading the New Testament, uh, but especially as they read Acts, is what were the apostles' main talking points? What were the highlights? What did they prioritize as they witnessed to Christ? And we should have that question ourselves. What what should we highlight? What should we focus on as we proclaim Christ? And of course, a whole lot of people would like to just stick with Jesus' ethical teaching, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But we know that uh, it has to be what Scripture tells us about witnessing to Christ. What does Scripture show us are the main things? And here in the prologue, and then also as we read the rest of Acts, it's fairly clear that the resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Christ were the central realities that the apostles were to testify to. Now, I'll just say here that I think Christ died for sinners is a wonderful summary of the gospel, right? Because it really is the centerpiece of the gospel. A Christ, apart from Christ dying for our sins and, and atoning for us, there really is no gospel. There is no hope for us apart from him taking the wrath of God upon himself that we might have peace. But still, there is no gospel without the resurrection. 
And it's the resurrection that validates that Christ's death actually meant all that it did. That it was received by God as a, as a proper satisfaction, a proper payment for our sins. So the resurrection and the crucifixion should always go together. In verse 8, our summary verse, Jesus doesn't spell out any of the particulars, but simply says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. And no doubt, we know that the disciples were to witness to everything that they had seen and heard. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his, his teaching, everything that he had commanded them. And this is why in the following verses, we'll look at them next time, when the 11 apostles are looking for someone to replace Judas who betrayed Jesus and then took his own life, the Apostle Peter stipulates that the replacement must be someone who was with Jesus, he says, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up for us, from us. So it's important for an apostle to have seen it all. But then listen to Peter's very next words. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. He doesn't say a witness to his life or even a witness to his death, but a witness to his resurrection. In the mind of Peter, there is something central about the resurrection. We see in verse 3 that indeed Jesus made a special point of proving to his disciples that he had, in fact, risen bodily from the dead. He didn't just leave the tomb and shake off the dust and ascend straight away into heaven. Rather, we read, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And the word for proofs here is defined by one of the major Greek dictionaries as that which causes something to be known in a convincing and decisive manner, or simply a proof, right? We know from Luke's gospel that at first when the woman reported that the tomb was empty and Jesus had risen, the apostles didn't believe it. Luke, about the report from the woman, he writes, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Believe it or not, resurrection was not a regular, everyday occurrence in first century Palestine, especially if the individual died by crucifixion. And so the disciples needed convincing. And Luke records of another instance where Christ appeared out of thin air. He writes, They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. As further evidence, Christ asked for food, because apparently Spirits don't need food. And they gave him a fish. And Luke writes, and he took it and ate before them. Now, what I want to emphasize here is not so much the proofs that the apostles received from Jesus. In fact, we don't have a lot of those appearances and proofs. We only get a smattering of the stories. But rather, I want to emphasize the central importance of the resurrection in terms of what the apostles were meant to witness to. It was important that the apostles themselves could without a shadow of the doubt know that indeed Christ had risen. They were to be 
eyewitnesses. And that's, in fact, what we see is the uh, meaning of the word witness throughout Acts. It's not just someone who speaks forth, but it means someone who had actually been there on the scene, someone who had seen with their very own eyes the risen Christ. And I'll say as an aside, to this day, I think it remains one of the strongest arguments in favor of the history of the resurrection that, in fact, the apostles were willing to die for their belief in the resurrection. And that much we know. Even uh, this uh, um, critical scholars, I was reading this week, that even critical scholars will admit that, yes, in fact, the apostles believed, we know this, that they had seen the risen Christ. That much is safe to assume from Scripture. Um, And here's a line that I read this week. Liars make bad martyrs. Liars make bad martyrs. Right? If you're making it up, if someone is ready to kill you for what you're proclaiming, then that's when you give it up. Right? That's when you say, no, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't didn't mean it. Um, And so the resurrection, I do think, is a good foundation for our faith. If you are struggling in your own faith, uh, I would encourage you, if you're struggling with the historicity of Scripture, to start by asking about the resurrection of Christ. If Christ indeed is risen, then he is who he said he is. And he affirms that the word of God is trustworthy and true. In John 10, he says that the word of God cannot be broken. And so if Christ is risen, indeed, we have a sure uh, foundation to stand upon. But returning to the, the centrality of the resurrection, listen to what Paul says in Romans 10 about how one is saved. He writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what we see in Acts is that Christ's resurrection and his consequent ascension and enthronement, and really throughout the New Testament, those things are sort of seen as a package deal. The resurrection is the central event that confirms Jesus' identity as the promised Messiah who would usher in the everlasting kingdom of God. How is that? It's because in the Old Testament, in the Davidic covenant, God promised David that one of his descendants would have an eternal throne. He promised David in 2 Samuel 7, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And David writes a prophetic word in Psalm 16 that this promised one will not see bodily decay. He writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter remembers this prophecy and he quotes it in his Acts 2 sermon. And listen to what he says next after he quotes that psalm from David. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. According to Peter, if Jesus had been raised up, and there were many eyewitnesses to say that he had, 
If Jesus had been raised up, then what that means is that he is the promised son of David. And what that means is that the kingdom of God has arrived. And this is why in verse 3 of our passage this morning, we see Jesus speak about the kingdom of God. It's because in his ascension, Jesus will begin his kingly reign. And of course, we know that his kingdom won't be established in full until he comes again. But in another sense, it is already here as Christ dwells in the midst of his people. As his kingdom of grace advances against the kingdom of Satan. And so Paul writes in Colossians, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Christ has a kingdom, and his heavenly reign began with his triumph over death. And that is what we see again and again in the apostolic preaching in Acts. I'd encourage you, open the sermons and see that the resurrection is the proof that he is the son of David. One last text on this point in Acts 17. Paul is preaching in Athens and Luke writes that the philosophers were curious and asking questions because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they give him a hearing in the Areopagus and the summary of the sermon is essentially that God made all things and created all things and therefore we ought to worship him. And at the end of his sermon, he says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Essentially, all men ought to Repent and receive the salvation freely offered to them because Christ is Lord and is going to come again to judge the world. And we're told that God has given assurance to all, not to some, but to all, by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And still today, as with Paul, as we witness to Christ, we witness to the living Christ and to his death and resurrection. In closing, I want to briefly consider uh, what this might actually look like. I had to wrestle uh, with this question. What does it mean to actually think about how the resurrection fits into our witness? A few things. And the first thing I would encourage you to do is to, to know, to get into your mind some of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's resurrection. Paul says it's central to the gospel, that the gospel is in accordance with the scriptures. I won't read the text, but if you want to write them down, a couple of the central texts regarding Christ's resurrection are Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53. The Old Testament prophesies of the resurrection of Christ. Secondly, if you're able, in your witness, see if the person you're witnessing to would be willing to sit down with you and read Scripture with you to open one of the Gospels. That's one of the most valuable things we can do in our witness to others is sit down with them and open God's Word and there to consider the claims of the Gospels. Thirdly, share your testimony of God's power of being made new, 
right? The, the witness that we have is not only a witness of words, but it is a witness by our very lives. And it's not just for us who went from being uh, drug dealers to smuggling Bibles into North Korea or something, but for many of us, being a witness, sharing our testimony is simply sharing about the joy and the peace that we have, the hope that we have. Excuse me, sorry. How Christ has given us strength to love our difficult family members and co-workers. How he's given us strength to love one another, even with all of our differences. Christ says that our love and unity here in this body will demonstrate to a watching world that we are, in fact, his disciples. Meaning, it will demonstrate that he is alive in our midst. Lastly, ask that God would make you a person who evidences the hope of the gospel. Especially now, when fear has gripped so many, uh, our witness is not simply about, again, what we say, but it's about our lives. It's about a supernatural joy. It's about peace and hope, even in the midst of life's sorrows and hardships. We're reading in Philippians that Paul was in prison, and yet he could rejoice in the Lord always. And so let's pray that we could do the same. We have the hope of the gospel. We have the hope of Christ's resurrection. So our Lord is risen, and he is enthroned in heaven above, and one day he will return to establish his everlasting kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace. We have good news to tell the world. So let's pray now that God would help us do that. He would give us the strength and courage to do so. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, indeed, we do have a message of great hope. Lord, we have a message of victory. Lord, we get to proclaim to people that you are enthroned and that you are coming again. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do as you have called us to do, to be witnesses, Lord. Lord, not just in the words of our mouth, but how we live our lives. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to be willing to, God, lay down our lives, to go and to sacrifice of our time and our resources. Lord, that all might know that you are Christ, that you are the living one that you hold the keys to death and Hades, and that you are coming again. Lord, thank you. Uh, Would you continue to strengthen us and be with us even as we celebrate your supper, as we think about your death, uh, and as we receive from your hand. Lord, be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.